Okay, cool. Now I'm recording. <laughs> so, <laughs> we have come to the last... <sighs> uh, straight face. Okay, go to the Ruth chapter four. So we have come to our last installment of our Ruth series. And uh, there's a bit more to go over today. So I'm actually doing like the normal, I'm standing up here instead of sitting in the circle kind of stuff. There's going to be a more standard kind of go through. You guys have your handouts, right? Yeah. Baller. So we actually have a point today. Like there is one more thing that I want to talk to you guys about that like when we get to it, it should slap you like a cement truck. Like a cement truck with arms. Oh. Oh, I see. Who knows? Maybe they just don't like me. Um, That's actually probably 100%. Yeah, it's fair. Anyways, so Ruth chapter four. Um, lost my train of thought. But we're coming to the end of our dating series. Sorry, to the end of our Ruth series. So real quick before we continue, what roughly has happened up to this point? Who can tell me? Yes. I see your hand. Or I guess you're not raising your hand. Okay, who, who are our main characters? Give me three of our... Give me three of our main characters. <laughs> Naomi. Naomi, that's one. Who, who can give me the other two? We got Naomi. Ruth. Ruth and Boaz. How are Naomi and Ruth related? Mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. That's right, because what happened to them while they were in Moab? All the men died. Amen to that. All right, so um, that's a joke, but... They come back into Israel. You have Ruth and Moab. Sorry, Ruth and Naomi. And then what's the problem with Ruth and Naomi? What situation are they in? Yeah, they're poor because they're widows. It's like they have no way to provide for themselves. So we come into the story, and then what's Ruth doing in chapter 2? Like, Ruth has to provide for them. So how is she providing for them? Yeah, she's going to the gleanings. And what field does Ruth happen into? Boaz's field, that's right. And then based on chapter 2, verse 1, what kind of glasses have we had on in this entire section of the story? Harry Potter glasses, not quite. Someone who was here. What kind of glasses What kind of glasses are we wearing since chapter 2, verse 1? Rom-com glasses, that's exactly right. What about your rom-com bells? Rom-com bells? That's what we've been hearing the entire time. But like, yeah, and in chapter 2, verse 1, it immediately makes reference to the Leveret marriage law, where if you have a close relative, then the close relative will marry the wife of the deceased brother to raise up offspring. So the author makes reference to that, and immediately we're thinking, Boaz can marry Ruth. Yes, question. We have talked about that, and also we have used different <laughs> phraseology to refer to the, We would say that Ruth is evaluating the man's ability to provide for her, which is a very she good thing. She was very stocky-ish, though. She laid at his feet. At the request of her mother-in-law, yes. But that was what we were talking about last week. No, yeah, straight up. One of the funniest things in the Bible, man. He woke up in the middle of the night, and he, behold, a woman was at his feet, That's and he cool. said, Who are you? Yeah, right? And we talked about how not every single instruction in the Bible is a specific instruction to you in the modern day. Are you actually? Yeah. Has anyone tried it? Has anyone tried it? I know that it is working. I mean, regardless of whether or not it works, I'm going to say that it's probably a risky play. But anyway, so we're coming up onto this, and what's the last thing that happened right before we're getting into chapter four when we, uh, we hit the. We said that that cliffhanger should be illegal. Nice. What was the cliffhanger? <laughs> so Ruth, you know, Boaz wakes up with Ruth at his feet, and then she's like, yo, marry me. And then what's the cliffhanger? 
What would Boaz say? She has a daughter? Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> Not quite. Um, so what's the cliffhanger? What, what does Boaz say when Ruth wakes him up in the middle of the night and is like, yo, marry me? There's a closer relative. Yeah, so Boaz is like, I'm going to ask him tomorrow morning to see if he'll redeem you. If he will, good. If he won't, it's me. And we were like, no, but we're rooting for the Ruth Boaz ship. We don't want, yeah, we want Ruth. We're Team Ruth. And we don't want some rando to, you know, come and take our ship away from us. And so for us, what was it? So we're like, we don't want him to take our ship away from us. And so we are in the context of Boaz has just said this to Ruth. Naomi's like, don't worry, Ruth. He's going to settle the matter today. And now we're coming back into the chapter. Boaz has left the threshing floor and he's going to the city gate. And we're going to see the conversation and basically get to the end of our little biblical rom-com. So in chapter four, you can follow along. It says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And one, another thing that's kind of valuable, back in that day, they didn't have like courthouses. They didn't like typically do their business going to some legal institution. For villages at that time, the business of the village was taken care of at the gate. Like the gate of the city was kind of the town center. And so that's where people would be gathered to do business. That's where people would be gathered to make legal decisions, all that good stuff. So Boaz goes to the gate. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. So you've got Boaz, you've got the, the home slice who's a closer Redeemer. Notice that we don't even get his name because the biblical author just don't care about this guy. He kind of doesn't matter, and we're going to see why he doesn't matter in a few verses. And then he gets ten elders. And the thing is, like, this is kind of how they would set up business contracts. They didn't do a written contract with a signature at the end that was stored at the courthouse with all of these paperwork and things that had to be done at, like, the DMV or whatever. They would make deals in front of a bunch of witnesses so that no one could contest it, but they didn't necessarily have, like, this written record contract with all the hyper, you know, administrative stuff that our government does in the modern day. They would have elders. They would make a deal in public. Everyone would know about it, and so no one would contest it. So... Uh, so they sat down and then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought that I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And then I come after you. And so at this point, what you're seeing is people want land. People like land. Land is a dope thing. And so this guy's hearing, oh, hey, I got the opportunity to get some land. I'm into it. So Boaz is kind of setting this up, and he's kind of like almost trapping this guy in his words. And he's like, hey, I want to buy this land, but I just want to give you the courtesy of letting you take it first. And one of the things that comes along with this is that if Ruth is asking Boaz to marry her and Boaz is saying yes, what if this guy who's a closer redeemer says, hey, I wanted Ruth. I wanted that land. I had a stronger claim than you did, and you didn't even talk to me about it. And so then potentially you start getting into issues of, well, okay, what if this guy tries to yoink the land, but be like, well, you've already married Ruth, so you can keep her. I just want the land. Like that kind of stuff. So Boaz is giving him the opportunity first. And the guy says, I will redeem it. 
And then Boaz said, The day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in this inheritance. Now, what's the thing about Ruth being a Moabite? Do Israel's like do Israelis like Moabites? It's a hard pass. Israel's got a bit of a racism problem. Once again, as we approach the context of this story, this is taking place in the time of the what? Time of the Judges. Is that a good or a bad time in Israel's history? It's a bad time of Israel's history. That's a time of Israel's history where people are kind of morally bankrupt, you could say. There's all kinds of problems going on back in that time. And so this is a period where mm, I'm not really into widows and I'm not really into Moabitesses. So mm, hard pass. So the guy says, and then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And this is something that we're, it really draws a hard contrast between Boaz and the Redeemer. Because every so often in characters, like, you guys know in literary stuff what a foil is? Who's ever heard that term in their English classes? What's a foil? What's a foil? To foil one's plans? Jackson, tell me what's a foil. Is when you have like the main character and then the author puts in a second character in to, that is to accentuate certain qualities of the main character. Oh, okay. Yeah. So like you have the main character who's like super nice and happy all the time. So a foil to that would be like a character who's like bitter and rude. Because mm-hmm. it accentuates the qualities of the main character. Yeah. It's essentially a contrast. It's a reference to things like engagement rings or diamonds where you'll put some foil under the, um, the diamond in order to make it shine more brightly. So it's something else that you put in the story to accentuate the qualities of the main character. Another example of that is in 2 Samuel when we talked about David and Bathsheba. That st- piece of the story actually used a foil. You had David talking to Uriah the Hittite and Uriah the Hittite was refusing to go and be with his wife because all of the armies of Israel were at war. And that's supposed to be a foil to David, who, while Uriah is unwilling to enjoy the things that are rightfully his, while the rest of the Israelites are at war, David is sitting at home enjoying what isn't his instead of being at war. So it draws a hard contrast between the characters in the story. So this is a situation in the Bible. Like, by the way, just going to put this out here for your own edification. Sometimes it's hard to think that English classes matter. I'm just going to tell you, There is not a single subject that I learned in school that was more helpful to me in biblical interpretation than English class. Learning how to interpret literary works. I mean, that was, that was in a, in junior high, I took a Bible class and it was like half decent, but learning how to read books, learning how to understand narratives, learning how to evaluate stories and written works. Like the Bible is interesting. Yes. Hey man. Get on it. You, I'm, I'm preparing you for when you're getting into high school. There's a lot of people that like don't see the value of the classes that they're taking. I'm just telling you, man, like apply yourself to it. English is awesome. <laughs> like on one hand, the Bible is an account of history, but God is also an author. And so the Bible is written like a work of fiction, not in the sense that it records fictional events, but in the sense that it's written as though it were a literary, literary work. And so you can actually use literary interpretation and like things to read and understand the Bible better. So like Focus on your English classes, man. Genuinely helpful. That's your little random nugget. But this guy is a foil to Boaz because what you see is that this friend, this uh, this redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, as I've heard him called, he is super interested in getting the field. He's super interested in getting more financial wealth for himself. But then as soon as he hears about this widow who's in dire straits and who needs help and who needs someone to provide for her, he's like, ooh, not that though. 
And that's in direct contrast to Boaz, where Boaz is actually motivated by the opposite. Boaz is actively motivated to take care of Ruth and to take care of Naomi. That's why he's here. And then the field is kind of just a bonus. And then Boaz isn't even going to get to keep the field anyway, because the firstborn son that he gives to Elimelech is going to take that field. And then the second son will be his own heir taking his fields. So like Boaz is getting nothing really out of this in the long term, except for Ruth. And that's the thing he's motivated by. So this Mr. So-and-so is kind of representative of some of the moral frailty that you see elsewhere in Israel, where he's totally down to get some more money, but he's not down to actually care for a person in need, whereas Boaz is interested in Ruth primarily, and then the field is just a side effect. So you see this is accentuating Boaz's character. Then in verse 7, Now this was the custom in former times, in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and to all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. Oh, dude, you remember in chapter one when we were like, who was Ruth's husband? Does it even say? It says in chapter four. That's awesome. I don't know how I just skated past that. Okay, cool. What happened? I'm taking your land. I'm taking... Love it. Which, by the way, what are what do you think is a potential reason why it's specifying that that was the custom for concerning, con, uh, confirming a transaction? I'm going to say that's not the reason. Who? So who was here on the day that we talked about the Leverett marriage law? What happens if the uh, person refuses to marry and to bring up uh, offspring for the dead? What happens if someone refuses to marry his brother's widow? Any of you guys remember? This was a couple weeks ago, so you might have forgotten. What was it? It was not rocks. So the thing that would happen is that if you refused to marry the widow of your brother, then you would take off your sandal, you would give it to the to the lady, she would spit in your face and be like, so it shall be done to the person who does not bring off offspring for the dead. And then the guy's family would be known as he who had his sandal removed. So the specific like prescription in the Deuteronomic law was involving removing the sandal. So when this is specifying, hey, so the reason he's removing the sandal is to confirm a transaction that was a cultural thing at the time, this is not like the indictment of Deuteronomy 25. So this isn't something that's happening to him as a consequence for him like refusing to you know, bring up offspring for the dead. This is just him confirming the transaction. So that's why that's in there, so that you're not like... It's his receipt. So that's why it's in there. It's like... To, it's to clarify that this is not an act of judgment in accord to the Old Testament law. This is just them confirming the transaction. So, not that it mattered. Okay. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in my, his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And then the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And one of the cool things that's interesting here. Yeah, I see your hand. Does he get his shoe back or does he have to buy a shoe? His shoes are expensive. 
He probably just has to get another shoe. Mm. I mean, I feel like the transaction happening with a bunch of land is probably much more significant than the shoe itself. I don't know. She's already come by, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, um, but here's something that's kind of cool. Uh, does anyone happen to know anything about Judah and Tamar and Perez? That was the daughter-in-law thing. Yeah. Genesis 38, all of the shenane is happening with Judah and his sons, where basically God was un, was displeased with Judah's sons, and so he kept killing them. And then the next person would, like, marry Tamar, and then they would be unrighteous, and God would kill them. And then the next one would marry Tamar, and he would be unrighteous, and God would kill them. And so you have all this stuff happening. And eventually, Judah ends up impregnating his own daughter-in-law. Um, and their firstborn son is Perez. So the interesting thing is that Perez is essentially the father of the Judah, of the uh, tribe of Judah, or at least the important parts of the tribe of Judah. And, (laughs) and like, if you read the genealogies of Jesus, Judah and Tamar and Perez come up. And so does Ruth, by the way. And we're going to talk about that a bit more. And so does Rahab. And so a lot of people that are kind of in who were kind of would be looked down on for who they were or their situations in life, God looks at them and he actually honors a lot of them. And so Judah and Tamar, that was a nasty situation. And yet Perez came out of it and the tribe of Judah and the line of Kings came out of it. And so God really blessed what otherwise would have been an unsavory situation. And so they're looking at Ruth, the widow, a Moabite, and they're saying, may God bless this person who might not be socioeconomically socioeconomically um, acceptable, quote-unquote. May God bless this person the same way that he blessed Judah and Tamar. And so there's something kind of neat about that. And then verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And now I really want you to pay attention to these next couple verses. I'm going to ask you a question. And then the woman said, and then, then, Words And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Real quick, why are they talking to Naomi and not Ruth? Isn't this Ruth's kid? Why, why does Ruth have a kid and then everyone's looking at Naomi and saying, Blessed be you? Mm-hmm. In the first chapter, we said Naomi was the main character. Oh, what happened to... Why what was it? a book called Naomi? Okay, Adelaide, gosh. <laughs> because most of the book does follow the actions of Ruth. And so, like, the names of the books of the Bible don't come from the books themselves. It's names that are ascribed to the books later. So, the books... Like, the names of the books of the Bible are not actually significant. Um, but, yeah, but we said that Naomi was the main character. What happened to Naomi in the beginning? In, in the first chapter, Naomi, what happened to her? Her husband died and her sons died. Her husband died and her sons died in a foreign land. And then she comes back to Israel and only Ruth stays with her. And when she's there, what does she tell people to call her? Mara. Mara. And why? Anyone? This is like some bonus, serious bonus points. What does Naomi mean and what does Mara mean? So Naomi means pleasant and Mara means bitter. That's right. Because she's saying the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And then the Bible still called her uh, Naomi. No, yeah. And then the narrator still refers to her as Naomi. Call me Mara. All right. And then the narrator. It's like, all right, you can throw your tantrum. 
Yeah, right. So Naomi comes back to all of this community and she's in an extraordinarily difficult and painful situation. And so when you're looking at the book of Ruth, Ruth doesn't really have an arc. Like Ruth is more or less a static character. Boaz is more or less a static character. Neither one of them really grows or changes in the context of this situation. It's just the circumstances around them moving and God taking care of them. Naomi has an arc. Naomi changes. Naomi goes out full, comes back empty. Naomi is the one who is suffering. Naomi is the one who comes back to Israel and she's in pain. And it's not to say that Ruth wasn't in pain, but it's to say that the Bible doesn't give attention to Ruth's suffering. It gives attention to Naomi's. And so Naomi comes out and she is in a rough situation and she has Ruth taking care of her. And you see God's kindness to Naomi, even in the midst of difficulty. And then at the end, this entire last section deals with Naomi. And so Ruth has a kid and it says, the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And they, uh, and then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. And so before I continue, I just want to like finish that off. Naomi is the one, like we open with Naomi. We follow Naomi's story. We follow Naomi's actions. We see the way that God's taking care of Naomi. And then at the end, it's Naomi who's feeling the blessing. And it's Naomi that the Bible is paying attention to. Like when you're looking at the book of Ruth, we keep saying there are faithful individuals in wicked nations. We have these on the board for all four of the messages now. And God is faithful to individuals in the groups he is judging. But then we also talked about how being like living a life with God does not mean that you never feel suffering. Bad things happen and the pain of this world is real. We're not supposed to live for this life. This life is painful. This life is full of suffering. There are so many things that are not as they should be. And God's intention for you is not for you to become a Christian and then have heaven on earth. God's intention for you is for you to become a Christian and have God. And then heaven will come later. And so when you're thinking about suffering, something that's going to be super helpful for you guys, you're going to go through hard times. You're going to have suffering-filled situations. You're going to have family members that die. You're going to have friends that die. You're going to be sick. You're going to have debt. You're going to lose your job. Like things happen in life. That's just how it works. And the Christian life is not a promise that there's not going to be difficult things in life. The Christian life is a promise that even when difficult things happen, God is still with you, even if you don't see him. Naomi didn't see God. Naomi didn't see God's hand. Naomi wasn't looking at her dead husband and dead sons and thinking, man, God's being really good to me right now by giving me Ruth and giving me a community back in Israel. She's saying, call me Mara because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And yet, when we look at this story, even though we don't necessarily see any actions ascribed directly to God, what we do see is we see God's provision all over it. We see God refusing to let Ruth leave Naomi and leaving Naomi with someone to take care of her. We see God directing Ruth to happen upon the field of Boaz. We see God taking care of Ruth and making sure that that other, you know, loser redeemer doesn't get her. And we see God taking care of... (laughs) And we see God taking care of Naomi by providing Ruth with a son and providing Ruth with a husband that's going to be able to care for her. And at the end of the book of Ruth, people look at someone who started in such a hard and rough situation and they say, has not the Lord blessed you? And the thing to remember is that when you're in those situations and you're in the context of suffering, just remember 
I might feel like I'm alone. I might feel like God doesn't see me. I might feel like this is way too much and I might not understand why God's putting me through this, but I know God's here. And I know that even in the midst of the hurt, God's providing for me. And that kind of mentality is something that's going to help you so much. And we've talked about suffering a lot. We talked about how suffering grows you. We talked about how suffering tests your faith. We talked about how suffering brings reward into your life if you suffer well. And now, this is another thing. Even when you suffer, God doesn't leave you. And there will be times when it feels like God has left you, and yet he will still be there. Uh, I can't help but give an example of this. So when I was young and dumb, um, like, I don't know, five days ago. um, But when I was young, I was like... I want to say I was in elementary school and I was at the beach. And so my family is with me and we're at the beach. And then my family wants to go back to like the place that we were staying. And I'm like, but I want to stay at the beach. So I stayed at the beach and my dad's like, are you sure you want to stay at the beach? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, do you know the way back to where we're going? And I'm like, yeah, I know the way back. And so I'm staying at the beach. It gets dark and I'm like, my entire family has left. So I'm just alone out there on the beach. And then I start walking back to the campsite and you know what I realized on the way? I didn't know where I was going. Little like fifth, sixth grade John who was so confident. Here's the kicker. I did not know where I was going and I was concerned. And I was like, man, I don't know where I'm going. It's dark outside. I can't even see where I'm walking. I'm just this little kid alone. And at that moment, you want to know who walked up right next to me? My dad. My dad didn't actually leave. He stayed and he watched me. He kept track of where I was. And when I was in a spot where I didn't know where I was going and I realized it, my dad was right there to guide me. And so I didn't realize that my dad had stayed. I didn't realize that someone was still watching over me. The whole time. The whole time. Yeah. Yeah. No, we were like walking back and my mom was like, Roger, you're not going to let him. She was like, he was like, no, I'm not going to let him stay there by himself. And my dad turns around. <laughs> yeah. So I thought that I was walking alone. I thought that I was lost. I thought that there wasn't someone there to help me or watch me. And then right when I needed them most, he was right there. And God's a very, God is very similar. You might not always see where God is, but he is there. And that's something that I want to like kind of put out here. Cause these two things, the fact that there are faithful individuals in wicked nations, first of all, that's going to help you to read and think about the situations where God judges an entire nation. And God is faithful to individuals in the group he is judging. That's, again, something that's helpful to think about when you see situations where God's judging an entire nation. But also, what's going to happen in 20 years when the United States of America is down the pipes, when persecution is rampant in ways that it hasn't been historically? What's going to happen when God starts pouring out his judgment onto the United States, which is a country that we are in? And we have to wrestle through, is it really possible for God to take care of me when there's all of this kind of political unrest? Is it possible for God to take care of me when there's, you know, potentially war or economic struggles or anything else? Like, is it possible for God to take care of me as he pours out his wrath on the country that I'm in? And one of the reasons that we're looking at Ruth and one of the lessons you should be learning from you, Ruth, is yes, he totally can. God was judging Moab. God was judging Israel. And yet, even when Naomi was in the context of places that were being judged and difficult situations, God took care of her and God took care of Ruth. And what that means is that God can take care of you and God can take care of me. And this is supposed to be an encouraging thing for when we go into hard times, because once you're going through a hard time, once you're in a rough situation, once God is already judging the group you're in, it's too late to learn these lessons. And you can still learn them even in the context of that, but it's much better to know these beforehand. And so, you know, you don't prepare for something five years after it happens. You prepare for something beforehand. And this is preparing, in a sense, for when suffering comes your way. 
But now, you'll see there's a third thing. And this is an overarching theme in the book of Ruth that doesn't actually pop up until the very end. And it's super important. So point number three is that God works cosmic events through individual lives. God works cosmic events through individual lives. And you get that right in the last portion of chapter 4 of Ruth. And the women of the neighborhood said, gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And that's huge. Because right after that, excuse me, in verse 18, it says, Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So Salmon is how you would pronounce that in English, but this isn't English. This is a transliteration of Hebrew. Did his parents name him after a fish? I don't know. No, they named him after a color. I'm guessing that's a Hebrew word. LOL, name of color. So one of the things that's really helpful, by the way, is when you see genealogies in the Bible, most of the time the genealogy is used to shift the narrative. It shifts narrative focus. When you're looking in Genesis and you have Adam and Eve and the story of Adam and Eve and their people, there's a genealogy and then it goes from Adam to Noah. And then all of a sudden you're following Noah. And then there's an, a genealogy from Noah to Abraham. And then you're following Abraham. And then there's a genealogy from Abraham to his sons. And like... Genealogies are frequently used in the Bible for God to demonstrate my redemptive history and my storyline is shifting main characters. We were talking about this person in this group. Now we're talking about this person in this group. So who can remind me about Genesis chapter 3 verse 15? We talked about Genesis 3 a few weeks ago. If someone want to turn there and just let me know why it matters. That was chapter 3, verse 15. Yeah. Yeah, read it. Loud and breath. I will put enmity between. Enmity? Enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and, he, and you shall bruise his heel. Yep. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So that is a conversation between God and Adam and Eve where God essentially says, I'm going to send someone to make this right. And the entirety of the Bible is the story of that seed. And so when you're reading the Old Testament, you see Genesis chapter three, that seed is introduced. And then you have a genealogy going from Adam to Noah. And now you realize, okay, at first I knew the seed was going to come from Adam. Now I know the seed's going to come from Noah. And then it gets more specific and this goes from Noah to Abraham. And it's like, okay, that seed was going to come from Noah. Now I know it's going to come from Abraham. It's going to come from Israel. And then you're going from Abraham to the tribes. And now you're going from Judah to David. So this is narrowing focus. And one of the things that's kind of wild about this is that the book of Ruth seemed 
like this disconnected individual story where some random widow was getting taken care of by God and some random faithful individuals were being faithful to God in an unrighteous nation. And yet, this last section connects the book of Ruth into the larger story of the Bible. Because if you're reading the book of Judges and you're seeing the extraordinarily wicked nation that is the people of Israel, where they degenerate even down to the level of Sodom and Gomorrah, you're reading that story and you're probably thinking to yourself, how in the world can God possibly bring out salvation when this nation is acting so wickedly? And then, after you read the book of Judges, after you read all the extraordinary problems that are happening in Israel, God drops this nugget. And he says, hey, while all of that was happening, there were still some people, even in that wicked nation, that were faithful to me. And even in the context of the book of Judges, I was still working out my plan for the salvation of those people. And no one saw it. No one realized what was happening. No one looked at Ruth and thought, yeah, the Messiah is coming from her. And yet God looked at Ruth and God worked it out. And sometimes for us, we can run into a two situations. We can think that what we do doesn't matter. We can think that what we do has absolutely no impact, that everything is just fatalism, where no matter how hard you try, you're just jacked. Like it's just, you're a victim of circumstance. Or you can think, man, I have the power in my own self to change the world. And you have those kinds of two extremes where either you think that you can accomplish nothing or you could think you can change the entire world. And generally speaking, neither is the case. And one of the things that you see is that God works cosmic events from the individual lives that people live. And Ruth is an example of that. Boaz was just a faithful guy taking care of a widow. Ruth was just a faithful woman taking care of her uh, mother-in-law. Naomi was just a widow in the land of Israel. And no one would have looked at their story and thought God is working out the salvation of the entire human race. And like, that's one of the things that I want you guys to think about is that what you do actually does matter. God actually uses faithfulness. God actually uses people. He uses individuals to bring about cosmic events. And so that's not necessarily to say that you're going to necessarily see what God is using your life for, but also... When God gives you instructions and when you're faithful as an individual, even if you never see the fruit, God uses it. <sighs> I should probably close. There was one more story that I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about Acts 9, but honestly, I think we're just going to close out. So, all that to say, there are faithful individuals in wicked nations. Israel was a wicked nation, and yet we see Boaz, we see Ruth, we see Naomi. There are God is faithful to individuals in the groups he is judging. God was judging Moab. God was judging Israel. And yet you see that Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, God's faithful to them even in that circumstance. God works cosmic events through individual lives. And that means that what you do actually matters, even if you never see the fruits of it. And then we also see that even when you suffer, God doesn't promise that the Christian life isn't going to have suffering, but he does promise that he's going to be there in the midst of it. So with those things in mind, let's bow our heads, pray it out. Yeah. Lord, thank you for the story of Ruth. Thank you that, first of all, you include it. That it is a kind of a cool story. I feel like I've said that every week, but Ruth is a cool story. You don't just give us a bunch of instructions, but instead you give your truth in the form of narrative in a way that we can see it and think about it and grapple with it in a way that we wouldn't just be able to grapple with a plain instruction. 
Lord, I pray that you would help us to have an accurate worldview where we would see that groups are not necessarily homogenous, that even if there's a wicked group, there still might be faithful people in that wicked group. And also that we are able to see that you are able to be faithful even in the midst of judgment. Lord, I pray that you would help us to think about suffering and to think about your plan and to recognize that what we do matters and that we should pursue faithfulness, not just out of a love for you, although primarily out of a love for you, but that we would see the value of it. And Lord, I pray that even when we suffer, that we would know that in the hurt and in the pain, that you are still there with us, that you don't abandon us. And I pray these things in the name of our King Jesus Christ. Amen.